the technology thing is a big deal. And I really think, again, what we're suffering from is just a church that is ironically a church that's asleep. And they need to wake up, not to the woke stuff. They need to actually wake up to the times that they're in. You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, a place for thinkers. Join us as we explore the depths of theology, philosophy, and the Christian intellectual life. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, A Place for Thinkers. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and today we are going to be doing a segment, Wine and Wives. This is the second installment in which we drink wine and talk with my wife, Lindsay Roberts. Welcome, Lindsay, the lovely vixen that always comes full of wisdom and full of wine for our conversations. I'm so happy to be here. And we're going to just get going. (laughs) We're just going to move on, break the ice. You can't let a woman talk too long or else they're going to end up getting you kicked out of the garden. You know what I'm saying, men? You know what I'm saying? What was that verse that you just read recently about? Wasn't it in Paul talking about how Eve... In the book of Paul? No, it was... Stop. It was something Paul wrote, right? It was like in 2 Timothy. What was it? What was the verse? (laughs) It was women... (laughs) Women should be quiet in church because and learn to submit because, after all, they got deceived by the devil. <laughs> <laughs> so anytime that you cut me off, we'll know that you're just you're just really taking. I mean, you're calls. lucky to even be able to speak here. <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of churches where they'd say you at least have to have a head covering, and I'm not going to make that a regular thing. <laughs> although maybe we'll do that when we have video. You know, like when we actually have a video, like wine and wives. Here's my wife. She has her head covering on because she's about to speak. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, so today we are going to be talking about the Live Not By Lies book study that Lindsay and I are hosting at our house with our church and thought it would be fun to bring you all in on that. So we are going to be talking about we're going to try and cover a lot of material today. So bear with us. Uh, Chapters three, four, five, six, and seven, but five, six, and seven basically can be wrapped up in the idea of the family as resistance. So we're going to talk about chapter three, which is woke, uh, wokeism as a religion, mm -hmm. progressivism, progressivism as a religion. And then the fourth one is uh, woke uh, capitalism or big tech. And then uh, three, four, five, or five, six, and seven. So we have our wine, we have our water to stay hydrated because we want to make sure that we keep our health up. And also, before we get started, please share this out with anyone and everyone you know. Our top city right now goes out to Kalamazoo, Michigan, so we want to give a good round of applause there. Yay! And we would like anybody else who uh, likes this podcast, please make sure you share it, share it, share it. That's even more important than leaving reviews, but leaving reviews is a close second. So please, wherever you are listening to this podcast, if your platform allows you to leave a five-star review, please do that. The best place to leave a five-star review is the Apple Podcast app, because that plays into a lot of the rankings and chartings and all that fun stuff. And we are going to try and be really, really good on the Apple Podcast charts. So please go onto your Apple Podcast app or onto your iTunes store. You can look us up and you can leave us a five-star review 
on the Solomon's Corner podcast on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, and then write us a nice little review. And if we really like it, we'll read it on our podcast. So um, we also have, also, I forgot one, one other thing. We also now have an affiliate book club program where if you buy books from our book club uh, recommended list, you will get uh, you will be supporting our podcast financially, so we will get a little bit off the top there from your purchase of a book club book. So, in case you were wondering, uh, please support us. We're begging you. So, join the Solomon's Club, Solomon's Corner Book Club bookstore, and uh, we will be sending out you know updates in our newsletter. So, if you want to support us and get updates on the book club books that you can buy from there. That would be great. Also, we do have a partnership with uh, Crossway Books for uh, a promo coming up in September. So if you want to get access to that promo, we will be getting 50% off of a book for our book club from them. So if you want to support us, join our newsletter and be aware, made aware of all the ways that you can give us your money. That being said, Live Not By Lies, chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 in less than an hour. I, I don't know that we're actually going to be able to cover all yeah, of that well, stuff. You really think we can do it? Well, Jack Carr says, don't tell me the odds. So <laughs> I've been reading a lot of the Terminal List. I've been on a Navy SEAL kick. So, you know. <laughs> so drop and I, give I you 50. If I start just dropping F-bombs and feeling like I need to grab a gun. <laughs> Put the books away. About... Put the fiction down. <laughs> yeah. Go get your metaphysical philosophy books mm-hmm. again. You're not a soldier and you never will be. Don't tell me the odds. Yeah. <laughs> no, but That'd we're going to... That'd be a moment of irony, wouldn't it? Like if I got that tattooed on my back. <laughs> wow. What? It like got the frogman like axes, you know, tattooed on my back. Oh, wow. Like were you in the were you in the SEAL teams? No, I got a master's in philosophy. <laughs> just, just real big fan. Just real big fan of what you guys are doing. I'm going to start calling you Ellen. Ellen, like DeGeneres. Ellen DeGeneres? Yeah. But she's actually funny. Mm-hmm. You have said that she is the only funny woman. Maybe. Didn't you say that to me? Yeah, but that's kind of like saying the women's soccer team is like the only good female soccer players. They still get beat by soccer men, like yeah. high schoolers. Yeah, but like 15-year-old boys. Like a 13-year-old boy is probably as funny as Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, well, let's go ahead and talk about progressivism as religion so i know you had told me that you thought rod dreher had some holes in what he discusses so i'm curious to hear what you think those holes are why don't you talk about that yeah i think that he's right about the progressivism as religion like i think he does a good job talking about that Mm -hmm. but i don't think he does a good job of the double think that is in what we would call conservative Christian churches who believe that they are taking a stance against things like BLM or LGBTQ or any of these things, then the next week they'll they'll give a sermon and they'll use the terms in their actual sermon that BLM coined or that the LGBTQ community would support. Terms like, like... Terms like systemic oppression. Terms mm-hmm. like we we stand with with the black community. First of all, your your language is very divisive, mm-hmm. and secondly, it's inconsiderate of what about the cops? 
They have families too. What about black cops? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of animosity towards cops right now. And so what you're saying is there are some of these churches out here who aren't flying rainbow flags, but they're still using the woke language Mm -hmm. and the woke ideas. But they would would call themselves conservative churches. They are conservative churches. It's not that they're pretending to be conservative churches. It's a classic example of somebody who doesn't understand what the implications are of ideas. Mm -hmm. And he does not, Rod Dreher that is, he does not do a good job in this chapter of highlighting just how pernicious these ideas are. So for example, you know, most churches will be uh, Mm anti-abortion. But many conservative churches who will hold to, you know, young earth creationism. Well, and like life beginning at conception right, and 100%. stuff like that. Yeah. And and they'll use the Bible to justify it all day long. Yep. And then they'll have a youth pastor who's got some infertility problems get up there and leave give a prayer request. And at the end of the day, that's wrong. It's completely inconsistent with their prayer entire, request for IVF for, IVF. for supporting their yeah. IVF. Well, and what's interesting, he actually Rodrier he had quoted some other guy. I don't remember what the guy's name was, but this other guy said that technology was going to be this gateway into progressivism, basically, and that Christians, because they were walking away from their morals, they were going to allow technology to determine for them what was allowed or what was permissible. So just like what we see with IVF now, because it's possible the church is not taking an ethical position on it. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think he, he, he's so focused on the progressive as religion mm-hmm. that he doesn't highlight enough the, the, the consequences of them imitating religion so heavily is that it actually seeps into some of these liberal church, these conservative churches who like being liked. Mm-hmm. Like C.S. Lewis says in That Hideous Strength, his main character, Mark Stedek, he has a choice between joining God or joining his or taking on his career. And the main thing that keeps him from making the right decision throughout the entire book is that Mark, quote, likes being liked. Mm-hmm. And these churches do not know that they do not know how to live in a world in which they are not liked by society. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to counsel their believers in order in in a world where they do not like where where they're not liked by the culture mm-hmm. where they're seen as bigots and they're called mean names and they're 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 losing their jobs in other words they're being persecuted it's very soft but it is persecution you are being considered a cultural pariah and so the conservative churches are trying desperately to find some sort of common ground. Maybe we can find common ground on somebody on the left who with IVF. Maybe maybe there is a point to BLM. Maybe there are some things that we can agree with. Just a few things. Maybe like systemic racism. Right. right. And they end up buying into a little bit and they get much more than they intended. Well, and that also makes me think of who is it you were talking to that said it might have been Father Fillmore, whoever it was, I I'm thinking of when they said, okay, you know, we're just going to approve this. And then the next year it's, oh, well, now we're going to go a little bit further. And we're going to go a little mm-hmm. further. But even still, it's just you were saying that in the effort to be liked by society or by these, you know, political groups or whatever, these churches are. Well, it's not political groups. You don't think that they're seeking. No. 
In fact, if anything, the church needs to become more political. Mm, they, they are mm-hmm. not actually concerned with the politic, politics of their own countries. But what's interesting is, you know, I, I've met enough missionaries and enough enough locals from those countries overseas where they do have real collapsed, corrupt governments that are really, really bad. And one of the things they hope and pray for is that Christianity will take root because of the political restoration it would bring. And even Alexis de Tocqueville, like we've talked about many times on this podcast before, said that there is a intimate link with the political success of the United States and their moral and religious intellectual habits. Mm-hmm. And it's important to note that by habit, he means intrinsic to them. Yeah. That they are regularly practicing their religion and their intellectual habits that they learned in England. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the thing is, is that when they come over and they start their country, they have all these virtues ready to go in a place where there's there's a lot of natural dangers and unknowns, but there's no superpower ready to take them down. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so I think the the thing that I, I really want to highlight here is that there's not a, that he doesn't clearly state how these ideas sneak in to the churches who need his book. So a, a Christian church who has a little bit of a concern, like a fundamentalist church or a biblical based biblically based church, has a little bit of concern about what's going on, like their leadership does. Like maybe somebody lost their job because of pronouns or something like that, and they're like, oh man, that's 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 unusual. That's a little weird. And then they see this book and they start reading it and they don't realize how much they're playing into the narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think it is important to actually give that example from the diocese of the Carolinas mm-hmm. because um, our diocese, we're Anglicans and our diocese it, it made a, a great example of this. Um, and I'm just going to pull it up real quick. Did you have any thoughts while I do that? No, well, I guess I do have one thought, and it was from chapter three, and Rod Dreher said that Puritan founders, Puritan, religious Puritans who founded America, they sought dreams of religious liberty, and uh, and he was just drawing the comparison between what the Puritans were after in America, this religious liberty and freedom, and the control that progressivism brings and and basically it's a false bag of goods and uh and it's a competing religion so Mm -hmm. well and and again you know even the blm stuff is very very religious in practice And and i think to a certain extent some christians don't recognize it because they don't have liturgy in their worship Mm -hmm. so they don't they don't see the parallels of ritual in the BLM stuff mm-hmm. that they would be hypersensitive to if they went to a high church Anglican or a high uh, or a, a very a staunch Catholic church. Yeah. If they went there for any prolonged period of time and then they looked out on the BLMers, they'd be like, there's no way I want to say anything remotely close. When you say systemic oppression, you might as well be playing the praying as a Protestant, the uh, Hail Mary. Yeah. Like it, like no Protestant would, would ever like say, you know, well, within reason, there might be some Anglo-Catholics out there that would be okay with this. But in, in general, like your, mo- your mainline evangelicals would never think that it would be okay to appropriate language from the Hail Mary prayers. Right. 
as if you are praying to Mary or just use a rosary. Well, I don't I don't pray the rosary. I just think it's pretty. Like people be like, "Why?" Because that's not your religion. Mhm. And the BLMs and the Antifas and all these different groups, the LGBTs, they have their religious symbols. And Michael Knowles does a great job talking about this too. Again, he's a Catholic though, because he yeah. so he recognizes liturgical markings. Right. And so as an example, our dom- denomination, which is considered conservative Christian, it has some some woke churches in it, but everybody's do does. But they our diocese which means the, the group of bishops, and so the priests that, are That are presides supporting. over the Carolinas. Right. Yeah. They put out the statement, like five days, I think it was, after George Floyd's, George Floyd's death. And in it, we have words like this. This is, this is how it started. They start off talking about his ima- the image of God, but he says that, uh, that uh, where is it? What happened to George is an affront because his status as an image bearer was not respected. He was treated in a way that denied his basic humanity. Now, he was resisting arrest. We know that now. Mm-hmm. And so, so the problem is, is that, you know, when we look at these things, you have all these, this language where he is winking at the BLM community. Mm-hmm. Now, what if he did something like this with the January 6th protesters? Yeah. Well, we obviously know that the left would be all up in arms. Your Democratic congregants would feel like you were be, you were sliding them. But there hasn't been anything about how the January 6th protesters have been held in prison without a trial. Right. And, and like, there has been very questionable activities around this. But again, it's chalked up as conspiracy theories. It's chalked up as all these things. But when it's mainstream, when it's the BLM thing, when it's the helping the least of these narratives... Then all of a sudden, the church feels like it needs to jump on real quick because we don't want the world to think that we don't know how to love the least of these the oh, yeah. way that the the way that the world thinks we should love the least of these. So I have another example too that is much more recent. With Roe getting overturned, you saw all of these conservative mm-hmm. churches saying, "Well, we shouldn't be celebrating and and cheering from the rooftops because we need to think of our brothers and sisters who are struggling with this change." And in the same way, these might not be churches that have rainbow flags or things like that, and they might be churches that that aren't technically going along with progressivism, right. but. The moment that something like Roe getting overturned, the moment you as a pastor are saying that that's something that we should be compassionate and consider their position and things like that, that is playing into the same power narratives that are discussed Mm -hmm. in the progressive communist ideology, which is basically that all of life is a compensation for these power dynamics between these oppressor and oppressed, and therefore... You know, a pastor shouldn't be celebrating because these oppressed women who can't kill their babies anymore, we need to equal the scales for them. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Well, and, and at the end of the day, in this letter, you you have you have the words like this. You have uh, you have our lament is real, but our lament is not limited to George and his family. We mourn alongside the wider black community for this tragedy awakens memories of their own traumas. And again, traumas is, is a counseling term, but it's also been, it's been co-opted by the left. Mm-hmm. And the larger history of systemic oppression, another woke term. What do you mean by systemic oppression? And that's the thing. It's like when they use these terms in their blog articles without defining their terms, 
they are participating in the lie that Solzhenitsyn would say was very dangerous. These are Marxist communist people that Steve Wood from the Diocese of the Carolinas decided to participate with. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think he's a Marxist, but again, he would probably read Roger's book and say, oh yeah, I agree with every little bit of this. Well then, where's your redaction of this actual letter and actually yeah. saying, you know what, we, we, we jumped the gun on this? Because yeah. that's what people will say. Well, everybody was everybody was trying to figure out how to react. Oh, really? Really? Like we were going to lose a ton of members in the Carolina Diocese because Steve Wood didn't put a statement out on George Floyd? Within? Within like a few days. Right. Like, He's he's also presuming that the the death was unjust. Right. Which that has to be determined in a court. So the issue is is that at the end of the day he is coming alongside the victim narrative without any evidence, without any court or trial, without anything that is objective. And on top of that, he's a priest, he's not a judge. In this case, he is just as much an onlooker as everybody else in the church. And so he should have put out and said, let's pray for George Floyd's family, and let's pray for the police officer involved that justice will be served. Yeah. If he had done that, then what would have happened? Well, we know what would have happened. He would have been seen as somebody who was taking the side of the police officer. And you can't do that because then they might not like us anymore. Yeah. Did you have any other thoughts? No, not really. I mean, this whole chapter is, I feel like we talk about these ideas a lot about progressivism and the dangers of wokeness and all of that and how it's religious in nature, like you were saying about, you know, the liturgies and things like that. Mm -hmm. So to summarize, what I would say is that at the end of the day, you know, Roderick does a good job in chapter three. There's no doubt about it. But he does need... I think if, if there's something that needs to be highlighted in the book that's missing is that you should be talking amongst your churches of, have we participated in these lies at all in the last two years? And I would include COVID in that. Mm-hmm. Because again, so many Christians decided to participate and just blindly follow their government. And now all this news is coming out about how the vaccines are actually not as good as we thought and actually might even have some immune system suppression. And the thing that's a problem is that the church just basically said, we're only going to talk about Romans 13. But God, in his paradoxical wisdom, has always included something on the other side of the coin, which was Esther. And she explicitly asks her Jewish community to pray for her because she's going to break the law. Yep. There is not a Christian out there who said, I am going to break the law, and if the, if the government comes for me, I am not going to submit to the consequences of that. There were people all over the country who said, if you're going to force me to get a jab and lose my job, I'll lose my job. Mm -hmm. That is exactly what Esther did. And pastors who came after those people who took stands during COVID-19, I think they should publicly apologize. I think they overstepped their bounds. I think that they completely exposed that the news sources they listen to on a regular basis Mm-hmm. And that they're incapable of discerning what the truth is in this modern digital era where news is on a cycle of a minute. Like, there is, it is incredibly important for pastors and Christians to understand that those who judge the people as conspiracy theorists 
as people who were overreacting, as people who decided that this was a big, this was a hill to die on, mm-hmm. and got judged hard for it, the people who did did the judging were completely one hundred percent wrong about this stuff, and it's starting to come out more and more and more, and and I think I mean even Fauci was on. Fox News the other day. On saying, Fox News? Yeah, he was on Fox News the other day, and he was being asked about the damage to women's menstrual cycles, and he was saying, well, you know, we've really got to we've really gotta just look into it more, but yeah, it's a thing. Yep. And it's like, well, then why did they get it? Yep. I mean, again, it's just, it comes back to, if you were voting in the election during that time, somebody will say, well, pol- COVID wasn't political. Oh, really? So who do you think people voted for when they showed up to the polls with a mask on? It's a 50-50 shot that it's Trump or Biden. But the people showing up without one, there's a good chance they're voting for Trump. Mm-hmm. And it became a political marker. And that's why, and I know that because it became subject matters in sermons all over the country, all over Twitter from the likes of Tim Keller and others, who would go and say stuff about COVID-19 and how we got a lockdown or Ed Stetzer or whoever it was. Francis yep. Collins. Right. I mean, and again, Megan Basham did an excellent article on this on the Daily Wire mm-hmm. about how the mainstream evangelicals and Anglicans like N.T. Wright just jumped on board with the global agenda to shut down lockdown and basically how Christians lost their credibility because they liked being affiliated as somebody liked by the government. Yeah. And this is so this is going to steer the conversation kind of to the side a little bit, but I think the real tragedy that also comes out of stuff like the COVID thing is this lie that we believe that things will go back to quote unquote normal. Mm-hmm. And this is something from the captive mind. He uh, he talks about, this is uh, Milos, uh, but he talks about how when a culture has accepted such a dramatic tyranny it's kind of like a man who has a raging river flood come through his yard and he believes that when the flood water subsides his flower garden is still going to be there just mm-hmm. as it was and it's not yeah it's gone mm-hmm. it's been it's been destroyed and you're going to have to build something different back and uh and I had read that today and I was reminded man this is I think about this with all the covid stuff and all of these people who said well, we shut down because we, you know, this is the compassionate, loving thing. This was loving our neighbor, but we'll go back to normal. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, no, you you sent us off on a different boat now. So mm-hmm. we're in uncharted territory. Right. Well, but. and and to understand that the identity of a nation is changing with every generation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and the thing that uh, I didn't tell you this, but I had actually come up with a working title for a blog article. What if we changed? the American flag, and uh, posing the question of, let's suppose that America, that somebody passes a, a, a bill or whatever. I'm not a political yeah. guy, so I don't know all the process. But let's just hypothetically say that some politicians figured out how to change the flag. Mm-hmm. Well, some people wouldn't change their flag. And so now once that happens, how do you go back to the original flag? Well, you, you pass legislation to reverse it, right? But clearly there was enough representation that wanted it changed. Right. These symbols mean something. They mean who we are. 
In the same way that Paul says, I believe it's Paul, or maybe it's, it might be the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, yeah, it's the Book of Common Prayer. It says, you know, that we would carry our banner of Christ. And the idea of your banner, your national banner or your Christian banner, meaning your banners under which you submit, those say something about your political and religious identity. Mm-hmm. And if, if we take that analogy even further, it's like, well, there were family crests. You had a That's family banner. Yeah. So within the natural law theory, there are actually three spheres that make up every single civilization. And when you start changing the symbols that define those things, they are representative. The symbols being changed indicate a metaphysical shift in the paradigms of the holders of those crests, seals, and flags. Mm-hmm. And that is dangerous. And if we actually look at today, we already know what flag they like to change it to because there are plenty of different flags that people would like to change it to and have been put on embassies around the world and in in other countries known as the rainbow flag. And so now the question is, do you really believe that we can just go back to a world where there's not teachers with a rainbow flag in their classroom or BLM flag or something like that? It's going to be very difficult to get back to that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that Christians today, as they read Rondreer, they need to start asking their question, the question of, what do I have as a responsibility in my local community, to myself and to my church, and to my actual political community, to make it a better place for the generation coming behind? Because, especially if you're in the older camp, your job is you're not going to see any of the fruit of the actions you do. Mm-hmm. You will be gone. But you still are obligated to do something, not for yourself, but for the next generation. Yep. So anyway, well, do you want to move into the woke capitalism? Yeah, now? I think I'd like to talk about that stuff. So um, I'll start this first off. Uh, this is another thing I had read in The Captive Mind. Uh, he was talking about how technology so he was being critical of america and i think when was the book written 1950s so he was saying technology even back then was undermining christianity even who are you talking about this is this is milos yeah this is in the captive mind and it it reminded me where where is he he's from poland he's in poland when he writes czechoslovakia no no no. he's polish so he's a little bit different from rogers uh Character, not characters, but but the people he's, people he's talking interviewing. To and interviewing. Yeah, but at the same time, he pulls so much of his stuff from Milos right, but anyway. But the people that Rod Dreher is specifically talking to are Czechoslovakians. Yes. Well, he also talks to he Russians. He talks to Russians and, yeah. Czech, and but, Czechs. But yeah, he. Yeah. But yeah. So this guy's from Poland, but it's just crazy because this was written in 1951 in Poland, and it's all of his criticisms of communism and stuff. But he is talking about America. And he says that technology, even in the 1950s, was already undermining Christianity better than violence mm. was undermining Christianity yeah. in, like, from coming from the communists mm-hmm. in Poland, which I just thought was unbelievable. So, on that note of technology and its role in undermining Christianity and in bringing about communism, what do you think about woke capitalism, Daniel? Oh, yeah. Well, I love it, first of all. I mean, just, 
Do it we have puts, an echo? It puts me to sleep. Yeah. Do we have an echo in every room of the house? Is that how comfortable you are yeah, with it? Yeah, pretty much. Just love it. Yeah. Alexa. 100%. Yeah. Well, we don't have an Alexa. We we use Comrade Siri in our house. <laughs> but but the but the point that I think is interesting is one that I've brought up before on past podcasts, and that is when you see a idea, not a theme, but an idea or a claim being made by thinkers from different countries and time periods. Mm-hmm. And they all are making the same observation on human behavior. I personally, just saying, believe that that is more authoritative than any social science study, peer-reviewed, whatever, about human behavior. I think it is something that demonstrates a deep, deep truth that transcends culture. It's an objective truth. When you've got a British guy, C.S. Lewis, who's one of the greatest Christian thinkers that we've ever had, at least in the last in the modern era, say technology is undermining the Christian faith and destroying our understanding of the human nature that Christians are supposed to protect and redeem. When he says that, and then Milos, he says the same thing in the captive mind. And then also, uh, there's another one out there who said the same thing. Is it it Solzhenitsyn? Uh, Solzhenitsyn? No, there's another guy out there. I'm trying to remember. Oh, Hannah Arendt. Mm. Hannah Arendt Mm. says the same thing in The Human Condition. She says that technology is that Sputnik going into the, the outer realms of space is a bigger deal than the atom bomb because we are transcending our nature. And one of the things that Dreher brings up is this idea of, of positivism in some of these chapters, but the idea that basically, you know, science is going to be the, 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 the vehicle of progress. And again, Christians have bought into this big time. In fact, even what's really bizarre is how young earth creationists have bought into this as well, because they are constantly looking for science to justify their interpretation of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so they will, even those who say, no, the Bible says that it's six days, that's just it, they'll still geek out over some sort of scientific paper or whatever that might prove it. So so the young earth creationism, you know, they, even if they presume their interpretation is correct, they're still looking for science mm-hmm. in the corners and be like, see, 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 this guy, he believes what I believe and he <laughs> has this scientific thing. It's like, well, if it's just revealed, then you don't need the science to tell you that it's true. Yeah. Now, they'll push back on that. They have their arguments, but we're not going to get into those. What I, what I, and that's not because I don't know how to respond to them. I do. But the, but the issue is, is that what science has become is an idol to Christians. It has become the lens through which, not that they read the Bible, it's become the lens through which they make ethical judgments. Absolutely. And so mm-hmm. now, if a white lab coat comes along, and it's very ironic that a white lab coat, somebody who's wearing something that normal people don't wear, again, this gets back to liturgy. Just yes. even if you don't want to go to a Catholic church or an Anglican church or convert, just go and research the liturgy. Yeah, and the understand. Yeah. And, and And here's the deal. Your church has a liturgy too. And it, what liturgy is, is it's the behavior that is informed by the theology for a yep. worship service. And so this just exists in everything. Liturgy is the theological term for it, but it's just a behavior pattern that reveals what you believe. And so at the end of the day, science has come in and people have said, 
well, you know, I'm not really sure. And they don't even go to their pastors a lot of times for any sort of, well, pastor, what should I do? I mean, should I do IVF or should I not? Well, pastor, what should I do? And then when they do go, the pastor's like oblivious to the process. He doesn't even go to the CDC. He doesn't do anything to look it up. He just says, well, what did your doctor say? Yep. It's like, well, guess what? There's a big difference. This is an important thing to Mm -hmm. know. Doctors are skilled professionals. That means that you can make moral and ethical judgments on the medical procedures that they do because that doesn't require a medical degree. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't do an IVF procedure, but you can definitely you can definitely judge whether or not that IVF procedure is morally right or justified for the patient. And what I think is a problem is that Christians do not believe that they are equipped to make moral judgments because they think that in order to make a moral judgment, they first have to earn the white lab coat. Mm-hmm. It's the other way around. Right. And even we were reading the Ar- Army Ranger Creed. It says that I will always be morally straight or morally upright. Mm-hmm. Well, who do you think is more qualified to counsel an army ranger on what it means to be morally upright, or let's put it this way, because you know we understand the state of the church these days. Let's let's say who should be the one who's morally upright and able to counsel a soldier on what it means to be a good man. Well, it should be the church. Mm-hmm. And guess what? That also goes for the Hippocratic Oath. Who is the group that should be counseling doctors? on how to make sure that they are choosing not to harm their patients. It's the Christian theologian and pastor and deacons. They're the ones who are supposed to be the teachers of the moral law to the world. It's supposed to be them who's holding the megaphone, condemning the world, and offering the grace in order to avoid that condemnation. And understand that there really are souls in the balance. And that there are real consequences to people not living according to the responsibilities to humanity that God has given each and every one of us. But that's why we can say, you know, my second, my, my grandmother with her second grade education, she was just a good woman. Because there, there's no degree required yeah. for what it means to be virtuous or to know or to, or to, to call BS on something when you realize it. And, and I think about, you know... Like my mom on how she handled my my one of my one of our siblings, he had some serious procedures that he had to go through during his high school years, and she challenged those doctors as a as a stay at home mom without a college degree, and in a lot of ways she saved his life, mm-hmm. and it was because she didn't let the white lab coats intimidate her, and she was willing to call BS when she saw it. And yep. mom, I'm sorry I'm using the word BS in reference to how you stood up for one of your sons. But, but you did call but, it. But you did call it. <laughs> and if you, rem- if, you, if you know the doctor I'm talking about, you, you probably would say maybe you should just say the whole word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, so woke capitalism and all that kind of stuff. And again, this, this comes back to, there's one other point I want to bring up on this, is, you know, what, what he is basically talking about in this chapter is how we have just freely given away our freedoms. 
Mm-hmm. And and here's how this ties into the progressivism as a woke religion and how churches are so quick to say, well, we like being liked by BLM and the LGBT crowd, even though we don't agree. We want them to know that we can hang out. We can be buds. We just don't agree. Yep. Well, how about this? What about the communist survivors? What about those people? Mm-hmm. Do you want to be buddy-buddy with those people when they say you guys are a bunch of nut jobs for giving away your freedom to all this technology and you think that it's going to be okay? Do you think that maybe they're worth listening to? What about their victim status? Yeah. Do you think that maybe, just maybe, they might know what they're talking about when they say you should probably have a place in your house where you can't be listened to just for just because it can really turn bad very quickly? And yet we, we sit there and we call them the conspiracy theorists or an American who listens to them, we say is crazy. And yet, who has the authority? Doesn't a black person understand racism better than a white person? Yeah, probably. Doesn't a communist survivor understand the implications of a state that is behaving totalitarian in totalitarian ways? And if they're sounding the alarm, don't we have a responsibility as Christians to operate in the truth and be wise and discerning of the times and react accordingly? Mm-hmm. certainly seems like we should. And that's what this whole chapter is about. Rod Dreher basically going around talking to people who survived communism and saying, hey, what do you think of Americans? You think we're, you think we're pretty smart? And they're basically like, no, you guys are a bunch of stupid idiots. <laughs> and that's, that is the pr- underlying text of this chapter. Yeah. Well, and, and again, coming back to the technology stuff, this chapter was the first time I really grasped what the social credit system was. I felt like I had an understanding of, I mean, I knew it was some, you know, like, oh, well, you know, if you do bad things, then life is harder for you. I did not understand to the extent at which it succeeds in locking you out of society. So for example, if I post something that goes against the CCP on my Mm -hmm. Chinese monitored social media account. Well, now suddenly I've gotten docked some points. So maybe I can't enroll in my university classes next semester. But not only that, it also affects my mom. And so now when my mom needs to take a train to go see my, you know, sick grandmother, her social credit has been hurt because of my behavior and now she can't get on the train to go up north to this and i think an example of where we saw it close to home was with the truckers in canada and we saw the technology and this you know canada grabbing control of the bank accounts of these truckers that were parked in what was the city ottawa yeah what was that what the capital capital of canada whatever that is yep um i thought that was terrifying and talk about an argument against all of this digital currency and qr code scanning and all of that stuff i mean right. well and and roger talks about this he's he's interviewing somebody and he says understand what this means your private digital life belongs to the state and he's talking about america mm-hmm. and always will for the time being we have laws and practices that prevent the government from using that information against individuals unless it suspects they are involved in terrorism criminal activity or espionage But over and over again, dissidents told me that the law is not a reliable refuge. And you talk about the truckers in Canada. Jordan Peterson just did an interview with a 
conservative politician in Canada who actually fled the original Soviet communist bloc. And he came here when he was nine, and he is now running as a conservative. And he got kicked out of his party because he was talking about COVID. And what he said about the, the emergency authorization that Trudeau did is that he said in his past life, before he actually was a politician, he was a lawyer for big businesses and, and or p- practiced commercial law. Mm-hmm. And he, he helped shut down bank accounts. And he said, the level of evidence that you have to have in order to, to convince a bank to freeze an account because there is criminal activity going on is insane. You mean insanely small? Insanely like, high. Like the amount of information The amount of you information need. you have to have, evidence that proves that there is criminal activity is high. So then how were they able to do it? Because that's the problem. They did it on a whim, meaning they just bypassed all of those checks and balances I to lock out all saying. these truckers. And so at the end of the day, this statement here of the law being reliable needs to be understood. That's not happening in the future. That's happening right now. Canada is your neighbor. I have friends that are like three hours away from where I grew up that live in Canada. And so it's, it, you know, we are facing a really crazy time right now mm-hmm. where you could literally see people in Canada finding themselves considering maybe we should flee to the United States. You know, you don't know, but at the end of the day, when that's the kind of stuff that's going on, the law is not reliable. Second point is, do you really think, I think it's a healthy consideration with what we're dealing with right now. Elon Musk is currently having a federal probe into his Tesla organization based on complaints of racism in his organization. Mm -hmm. Do you think, and this is to the audience listening, I think it's worthy of reflection. If the government launched a probe into your personal life, how many of your friends at your church would be standing with you and saying, I don't care what they say. I still believe you. I know you're a good person and we're going to get through this. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important question to ask because I would be willing to bet. Let's say it's on something like pornography or something that's, you know, really damning in the church. And you didn't do it. But the government says you did. Mm-hmm. Is your church going to stand by you? It's going to be real dangerous if they do. And I think that the issue is, is that people are not considering that what matters most is not what the government says about you. It's what your community says about you. And yes, there are dangers with that. There's no doubt about it. But we're, what politics is supposed to do, it's not supposed to cure all evil. It's supposed to mitigate evil. Yeah. And a, a local community is much better at determining whether or not somebody is trustworthy than the federal government is. Mm-hmm. And given the power that the federal government has, the local community cannot frame a person the way that the federal government could. But at the end of the day, the technology is really bad. And the last point I wanted to make is this, is that so many churches, again, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist, but you should also not be a fool. If you are live streaming your church services, you should at least just understand you might as well be live streaming them directly to the government. Directly. And just ask yourself about other Christians around the world. How many Christians around the world would live stream their church services 
to a government they knew were hostile to them. Yeah. And I just think it's worth considering. I'm not saying you shouldn't have some stuff live streamed or whatever, or like you shouldn't be strong in your faith or that you should deny Christ and all those kinds of things. What I am saying, though, is do you know what you're doing when you have a camera in your church? Do you understand the risk that you that you have there? And let's just not even consider the government. Violence and crime is on the rise. We saw the other day a video that went viral where two hooded people walked in. They had their COVID-19 mask on, by the way. And then they put guns to the priest's head. This was probably a prosperity gospel preacher or whatever. He doesn't seem like he was an orthodox guy, but it doesn't matter. The bottom line is, is that these guys snuck into a church, sat in the pews, and then pulled guns on the congregants and robbed the pastor and the congregants at gunpoint while children were in the sanctuary. And pastors need to understand that if they don't understand the times, they need to have people around them that can counsel them in the times. When you are blasting out on the internet that your church does not have guards, this is a foolish thing to do in today's day and age. Yeah. There's a reason why schools are the targets for shootings. And it's very easily summarized. If I were to tell you, we're trying to have a gun-free campaign in our local elections, would you put a sign in your house yard that says this is a gun-free zone? <laughs> and nobody would do it. And I challenge anybody, if you, put a, if you put a gun-free zone sign in front of your church, do it. See what happens. But you know what'll happen. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, the reason why we have the Second Amendment and the reason why it's important is because there has to be a level of, well, not the Second Amendment, but the reason why this is important is because Christians need to understand the technology that they're using. It gets even worse when you consider the fact that none of these churches have anybody who's on staff to handle cybersecurity. And they've got all of these wealthy people donating money up the wazoo to these churches through their online giving stuff. Yep. And then they get hacked and they just say, oops, sorry. But they like they don't have enough young people in their churches to counsel them on how to have a good cybersecurity. The mm-hmm. reality is, is that shepherds protected the flock as much as they fed them. Yeah. And priests and pastors and church leaders, they need to wake up and they need to read Roger's book. They need to see the times that they're in and they need to protect their flock. They need to understand that that is one of their duties. And I want to say something else. Daniel might not have a white lab coat, but he is a developer. So that is true. You know, you're not just saying this. No, no. As a you know, as a stay-at-home mom. No, that's true. You, you do know your stuff a little right. bit. That is true. So, so at the end of the day, the 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 technology thing is a big deal, and I really think again what we're really suffering from. In it, that you could summarize all this stuff is just a church that is basically, ironically, a church that's asleep. And, and they need to wake up, not to the woke stuff. They need to actually wake up to the times that they're in, especially the older generation. When we were at the Ignite conference a couple years ago now, I think. I think it was last year. Yeah. It was this past year. Um, Reverend Phil Ashy was there. These are some Anglican names. And uh, he he's a a guy who's pretty high up in the Anglican church. He does some legal counsel stuff. He's well known. And 
at the end of the day, you know, we were at a conference and there were a couple speakers here, but he gave a talk and it was very, very fatalistic. It was basically like, you know, we just need to take the Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego route. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know if we should. I think more people should read Esther. I think more people should read Nehemiah. And they should understand that there are precedents for defending your family and defending your churches against these kinds of things. Well, and don't you think also, this is something you and I have talked about privately, but sometimes it seems like it's easier for people who are, say, 60 and older to take that fatalistic approach of, you know, well, we might just need to be a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, mm-hmm. you know, kind of kind of right. church. And it's like, well, you don't have kids that you're going to have to right. watch get thrown into that oven. So right. it's a little bit of a different calculation mm-hmm. because you can just look at yourself and say, well, I've lived a long life and yeah. put me in there. I trust. Yeah, you, you, know. you don't have any responsibilities. Right. I mean, you have the responsibilities that you are. I mean, if you're 70 and still working... I mean, that's a blessing. I mean, at, at the end of the day, there has to be a level at which the leadership in the Christian church, especially older leadership that is getting ready to retire, that they leave the church in a state in which it is ready to do battle with the world. Right. Not and, just, and not, not just, just roll not over. just sit there, roll over and let the fires come. Yep. You know, the, the, the issue is, is that we have all read, and, and let me be very, very clear. I am not saying that we are in a, in a Nazi Germany kind of situation at this point. Right. But everybody is saying that the world is fast approaching a totalitarian ethos, and they all seem to be obsessed with it. I mean, Justin Trudeau earlier this year said he was, he was admiring Xi Jinping and his ability to get things done in China. That, that is our ally to the north. And, and the reality is, is that when we read about the times, especially when you read stuff in comparison to Russia and Nazi Germany, the, there is a big difference, is that with Russia, Solzhenitsyn's primary thesis is, why didn't we do anything? Mm-hmm. And they could have done something. Yeah. And there is an essay, and I think it'll be our next podcast. It's it's the three, it'll probably be something like the three pillars that lead to communism. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a very different thing that happened in Nazi Germany in that there were actually resistance cells that formed. Yeah, this might not be exactly the same thing, but it caused me to reflect differently in The Pianist, that scene when they're starting to mm-hmm. load all of these people onto the... Um, into the cars, the the box cars, and it's a bunch of old men mm-hmm. and women with children. And one of the old men is saying, "You know, they're going to kill us. We should fight back. There's enough of us here that we yeah. could fight back." And everyone else makes excuses and says, "Well, no, no, no. We'll we'll just be taken to a labor camp and we'll just work and it'll be fine." Mm-hmm. And that's not what happens. Right. And Rodriguez really putting a microscope on the the specific methodology of meditation and christian reflection that can help you endure suffering if everything has been lost and i think it's important to recognize that 
in these other contexts, and we can read about them in the history books. We call them heroes now, but the, but the the reality is, is that people were actively resisting the Nazi regime in more ways than just going to church and praying about it. Yeah, and in more ways than just sitting around in a house and doing Bible studies. And there is definitely a need, and that is essential to any strong Christian dissident movement. But one thing is also clear, that the resistance groups in Nazi Germany were willing to break the law for the sake of helping the Allies and restoring their country. The, the, the challenge is, is that, again, is there, uh, is there a way forward in which we don't end up there? That's what everybody's goal should be. Yeah. Is that we don't actually end up in some sort of dystopian Orwellian state. Yeah. Stop the train before it's right. gone off the cliff. And the best way to do that is to start taking responsibility for your intellectual life. Start understanding that there is more to life than Netflix, video games, and whatever pastime you do to numb the nihilism in our lives. That there is really value in standing up for the values through little things, whether that's learning a trade or whether that's starting a business, whatever it is, be actively trying to change the minds and hearts of people, not just getting them to say a prayer, getting them to renounce the world and to claim Christ. That's what has to happen. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, then even if the darkness does come and it's as bad as Russia, there will be a remnant that's preserved. Yep. Um, one last thing is just a little takeaway uh, that we'll probably talk about more in depth at the next one is we are going to be celebrating, uh, and it'd be great if this could go viral on um, social media and all that, but uh, we are going to be trying to get a group of Christians together to remember Christians who are martyred in communist countries um, for our own church around October 30th. Um, our own church group. It's not actually officially uh, sponsored by our church or anything like that. But I would encourage Christians to also take that day and whether you can get a group to celebrate or not, but start trying to think of ways that you can actively embody and remember the history of those who were, who were killed by communism and stood for their faith. And so one of the things we're going to do at this thing is we're going to have a lot of food and we're going to have a, uh, a reading of Solzhenitsyn's uh, Live Not By Lies speech. And we will also highlight a particular martyr by the communists uh, that, that uh, lost their lives in that, uh, in that uh, horror that was communism. And the, the martyr will be, uh, I believe he was about 13 years old. So um, mark your calendars, October 30th. If you can't be in the area, then... Uh, we will, you can celebrate with us digitally. Um, but yeah, October 30th, we are going to be remembering the uh, martyrs of communism. So thank you for coming and listening to the Solomon's Corner podcast, this special segment of Wine and Wives. We really appreciate it. And we hope that you enjoyed this session. And the next one, we will be talking about how families can be resistance cells to tyranny and totalitarianism. And we'll also be talking a lot about how churches can too. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. I'm Daniel Roberts. I'm Lindsay Roberts. And keep thinking. Keep thinking.